0: When I was little we moved to Canada for a year. My memory of it's kind of hazy but one of the things that sticks out is this kind of feeling of endlessly being on the road. Just staring out the window of a car with my Walkman. I had three tapes that I played over and over again until they wore out. Keeping in mind that I was like six or seven the three tapes that I played to death were uh, number one The audiobook of Call of the Wild by Jack London, which I think my mom bought because uh, it was about wolves and didn't realize that it was actually a gut-wrenching trek through the North American wilderness where multiple people and dogs perish in kind of increasingly gruesome ways. Uh, And then number two and three were the greatest hits of both Queen and Elvis. When I got to my new school, one of the girls asked me if I preferred the Backstreet Boys or the Spice Girls, and I didn't know who either of them were, which is one of the first memories I have of feeling deeply uncool. (laughs) The reason I didn't know who the Spice Girls were at age seven was because I was truly, madly, and deeply in love with Elvis. (laughs) The internet wasn't a thing we had, so I'd kind of developed my crush purely on the basis of the cassette cover and the accompanying leaflet, which had Elvis both at the height of his beauty and at the height of his rhinestone jumpsuit. I was obsessed. I knew all of the words to every song. I know used to stare adoringly at the cassette cover and sing along. Then we took a trip to Las Vegas, and I saw him, Elvis, in full rhinestone jumpsuit, pulling moves on the sidewalk. I was ecstatic. I dragged my parents over for a picture. I'm pretty sure he signed an autograph. I was on cloud nine. I think when you're a parent, you probably forget that children don't inherently understand the concept of time, space, and death. And so what my parents had neglected to tell me, of course, was that Elvis had died 20 years prior, and they chose the height of my excitement to deliver that information bringing me from the soaring euphoria of meeting my first ever crush to the crippling low of realizing that it was just some guy in a wig. Uh, And that said crush at this point was probably nothing more than skeletal remains. Time to unpack that a bit, probably. (laughs) I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition. And today I'm thinking about celebrity deaths. I guess just sort of like as an addendum to that intro story, when I was like 15, following this crushing betrayal by my parents, I bought an Elvis Lives t shirt and once again experienced the intense feeling of being deeply uncool when several people that I went to high school with side eyed me and said, Didn't he die like ages ago? Uh, the shirt tragically is lost to the sands of time and I've never been able to find a suitable replica. Anyway, I think the slogan Elvis lives probably illustrates a little bit of what I've been thinking about when it comes to the very public nature of celebrity death. Namely that for some reason it's really hard to accept to the point where some people just don't. In lieu of reality, people will hold firm in whatever belief is most convenient to them that allows that celebrity to keep living, essentially stuck perpetually in the denial stage of grieving in the case of Elvis, around 4% of Americans surveyed in 1997, the year of my heartbreak, believed that he was still alive, <laughs> which sounds like a small percentage, but shakes out at like 11 million people who believed that Elvis did not in fact die and was actually in the witness protection program following an FBI mafia sting or whatever. There are a few theories. My point is, when a celebrity dies, we see these huge public outpourings of grief that seem to be somehow genuine and extremely melodramatic at the same time. Depending on how you feel about the celebrity in question, someone else's intense emotional reaction to the passing of someone who's so far removed from their actual lives can feel kind of silly. As someone who is, unfortunately, invested in famous people for some reason... I've found myself struck by huge waves of sadness when a particular artist or musician or actor dies, and it can be really difficult to articulate to people who maybe hadn't heard of or aren't interested in that person. For example, I found out that Leonard Cohen died when I was at work because my boss said the hallelujah guy died, and I went, not not Leonard, Uh, and then immediately burst into tears which he was not expecting, and I was also not expecting, and it was deeply uncomfortable. So, uh, because I have more important things to talk about when I go to therapy, I've only got an hour and I've got like bigger fish to fry, Uh, you get to spend this episode listening to me mull over celebrity deaths, the phenomenon of public grief, and why it's so hard to accept the fact that fame doesn't necessarily equate to literal immortality. I think it's probably good to look at this topic with a little overall understanding of how we approach death and dying as a society. Western approaches to mourning rituals have changed pretty significantly over the past century. Up until the 19th century, it was pretty common to prepare the body in the home and to keep watch over it. Um, Over time, those rituals have changed for a lot of reasons. Um, they are absolutely too numerous to list here. But one piece of trivia that's stuck in my brain for some reason... Uh, is the rise of embalming as a practice following the American Civil War. So essentially the scale of death in the American Civil War meant that bodies were rotting away before they could make it home to their loved ones, and railways were refusing to transport corpses unless they were sealed in these prohibitively expensive iron coffins. A cottage industry sprang up around battlefields with men offering services that pumped those bodies full of chemicals to preserve them before they were sent home. And then the practice was so lucrative that it was aggressively marketed after the war as a hygiene practice that saved the public from disease. I'm pretty sure I've remembered this fact from a book called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium uh, by Caitlin Doughty. She has a couple of books and a YouTube channel where she discusses death rituals, the funeral industry, and the practicalities of dealing with our dead. If death and dying are things that make you uncomfortable... They're a really great starting point for demystifying some of that stuff. Anyway, the point of that fact was that large-scale wars often had a pretty significant impact on our interactions with death. And after World War II, there was a steady decline in people dealing with death in very direct ways. The physical presence of death in our lives, and specifically in our homes, became very sanitised, which meant that our funeral rituals and grieving processes necessarily became more abstract. On the whole, this has meant that A, most people's experiences of death are filtered through some form of media lens, so for example, television or cinema, and B, that the increased prevalence of technology in our lives has driven many of our mourning and memorialising practices into online spaces, particularly on social media. The phenomenon of Facebook memorial pages, for example, has allowed family and friends to continue to engage with the deceased in ways that may not have otherwise been accessible to them. The role of these types of digital memorials has become even more prominent when considering the death of a celebrity, who is significantly physically removed from the daily life of a fan anyway. The one-sided relationships that fans have with celebrities are referred to as parasocial relationships. Now, parasocial interaction is a term that was coined in the 1950s to explain the types of relationships developed between consumers of mass media and the figures represented by that media. The originators of the term believed that while most people use these relationships to supplement their existing social interactions, some people developed extreme forms of these relationships as a replacement for elements that were lacking in their real-life interactions. But throughout the 1980s, when the term gained a little more traction with both psychologists and communications experts, this view was contested, with researchers indicating that these relationships was a sort of natural byproduct of any amount of time spent with media figures. I think if I were to split these two views out into, like, an example, I'd say it's probably, like, two kinds of Twitter accounts, Right. One is an average sort of account sprinkled with retweets of the occasional video of a preferred celebrity with captions like no one's doing it like Taylor Swift and excitement about listening to an album. And then the other version would be like a Stan Twitter account that has like a BTS icon and tweets almost exclusively about Korean boy band BTS and engages primarily with other fans of the band. The first example is a kind of casual fandom, or like a casual parasocial interaction. And then the second is an extreme parasocial interaction where the person is deeply and profoundly invested in one specific thing. The death of any of the celebrities involved in those scenarios would have an impact on the person doing the tweeting, but it would probably play out a little differently for each person. When I mentioned that I was writing this podcast to a few people, their reactions to celebrity death fell into like three different categories. There were two extremes, uh, people who either couldn't name a celebrity death that had impacted them, or people who could immediately name one and had a lot of feeling associated with it. The largest group by far, though, was people who had been significantly impacted by a celebrity death, but were surprised by the impact that it had had on them. They'd witnessed other major celebrity passings with a kind of detachment and skepticism at the big displays of public grief. So they were surprised when they had a significant emotional response to another death. They felt like their feelings had snuck up on them. I think this is partially because society as a whole doesn't view expressions of grief for a celebrity as normal necessarily. For two reasons. First, we're disbelieving of the intensity of the emotions surrounding the death because they weren't like a real presence in your life, so why do you care? And second, we're uncomfortable with the intensely public nature of the grieving taking place because our mourning rituals are now a largely private affair. The first issue kind of causes the second one, I think. In an article on celebrity death, Ali Finney says... Our relationships with celebrities don't necessarily follow typically understood measures of time and space, making them seem subconsciously immortal to us in a sense. So our relationships with celebrities are also often very internal. Uh, They represent something to us about a memory or a moment in time, and therefore they're invisible to other people a lot of the time. When Leonard Cohen died, I couldn't explain to my boss that at 18 I'd trekked to Glastonbury Music Festival explicitly to see him perform, and that him dying felt like this huge marker drawn in my life between the way things were and the way that they would be. Instead, he just had a widow crying over a guy whose song was covered in the Shrek soundtrack. <laughs> in the absence of immediate understanding of overwhelming and sudden feelings, Fans may not be able to find comfort in traditional channels like friends or family. It's easier to empathize with someone losing a close relative or a friend than it is to understand someone losing the nebulous concept of their youth as symbolized by an elderly poet. No reason I'm using that example. In many cases, fans will often turn to other fans for support. Public gatherings at meaningful sites are common following celebrity deaths. If you take Kurt Cobain's death, for example, around 7,000 fans congregated in Seattle to mourn. 225,000 people gathered near the site of John Lennon's shooting in the week following his death. Another 30,000 gathered in his hometown, and around 1,000 people spontaneously gathered outside of his apartment in the two hours following his death. Princess Diana brought an estimated 3 million people into the streets of London on the day of her funeral. The deaths I listed are all unexpected and the result of tragic circumstance, which in some ways enhances the experience of grief and the compulsion to do something with it. It makes sense for fans to gather in the wake of a death because not everyone's reality has been altered in the same way as theirs has. Why turn to a friend or family member who might have preferred the Rolling Stones, or hated the monarchy with a passion or just been too old to care about grunge, when you could talk to someone who shares the same devotion? Writing about the fan assembly outside of John Lennon's home in the two hours following his death, Joshua Mayowitz says, "'Strangers embrace and cry. Crowds stand in silent witness or chant the dead hero's words or songs. The pain is paradoxical. It feels personal, yet is strengthened by the extent to which it's shared with the crowd.'" So in allowing that pain to be vocalised and shared, fans can grieve in a way that's more aligned with conventional mourning practices, However, such public displays of pain are often at odds with how we've been taught to treat grief previously. That is, as something to be shared intimately, predominantly in private, and only with those close to us. And because it is normally so private, and our relationship with death is often so sanitized and abstract, its sudden presence in the public sphere by way of mass outpouring is met with the sort of disbelief and curiosity that's usually reserved for more positive types of spectacle. All the deaths I mentioned previously were pre-social media, but a lot of research into memorial pages on Facebook has indicated that people viewing public memorial pages for a deceased person often develop an emotional connection to the deceased even though they didn't know them in real life. Jocelyn DeGroote calls this type of grief-related voyeurism emotional rubbernecking. Aside from death just being a sad thing generally, I think that type of voyeurism springs from the abstract nature of death and grief in most of our lives. When we think about that phenomenon in relation to celebrity death, it's easy to find significant public investment in mourning rituals, both from an interest standpoint and a desire to push a continued narrative of immortalization for the celebrity in question. Kurt Cobain's public memorial, for example, was effectively organized by the local news media and half the cost of organizing was fronted by the city of Seattle. The general public were fixated both on the intense reactions from mourners, which included eventually diving into a nearby fountain and chanting together, and from Cobain's widow, Courtney Love, in her taped reading. A study of articles released in the weeks and months following Cobain's death repeatedly showed images of grieving fans and discussed Courtney Love in relation to what their grief meant about Cobain's legacy. If people were this upset, then it simply must mean that he's the voice of a generation. It's a different kind of emotional rubbernecking in that it used the interest in observing and understanding the fan grief to construct a mythology around Kurt, which is something that probably would have happened anyway, but was definitely propelled by a consistent observation and utilisation of public mourning. So how is this updated for a post-social media world? I think we gather less physically now. I was kind of mulling over the reasons why. Um, Firstly, I think the nature of celebrity has changed a little bit in that social media has made famous people feel more accessible. You can throw a tweet out at Lady Gaga and there's a chance that she'll engage with it, which I think mutes some of the impulse to actually congregate because it doesn't feel like you're searching for some mythical homeland that birthed your favorite superstar. Some of the mystery of celebrity is, like dulled by the illusion of their online presence. When a celebrity dies, it's not uncommon to see fans using memorial pages or even just their Twitter accounts to speak directly to the celebrity in the same way that people have previously spoken to dead loved ones at their gravesite or written letters or kind of quietly spoken to them. This phenomenon's not unique to celebrity pages either. Uh, people often use memorial pages of friends or relatives in a similar way perhaps because sending a message into a kind of nebulous online space still feels as though it's going somewhere. The difference in doing so on a celebrity page is that the type of communication doesn't change, meaning that even in death, the parasocial interaction with the celebrity isn't fundamentally altered, which can leave the process of grieving stuck at a particular point sort of seemingly endlessly. To give an example, about three-ish years ago, Kim Jonghyun, a member of Korean boy band Shiny, died. And since then, fans have consistently been doing threads of daily messages to Jonghyun, sometimes alongside a favorite photo or like a piece of art they've made. If you search on Twitter, you'll find thousands and thousands of posts addressed directly to Jonghyun, doing everything from talking about their day to telling him how much they miss him um, to expressing how much they meant to him. And some fans have been doing this every day for three years. Which kind of brings me to my second point. The second thing that I think has changed is that you can be fairly instantaneously connected with other fans of whatever niche interest drives you now. And usually in a pretty public way. And I think this has changed the nature of fandom really significantly over time in that it's introduced something of a competitive element fans feel much more responsible for their favourite celebrity's public image, partially because major news publications like BuzzFeed will often directly harvest their posts to supplement their articles. And that can really quickly turn into a competition over who best understands Harry Styles' true intentions when writing Watermelon Sugar and is therefore most positively representing his lyrical legacy. The same competitive behaviour carries over into grieving. Grieving fans feel that they're constructing and curating the public memory of their beloved fave. So to use Hyun as an example again, littered among the notes and messages of love, there are also fans arguing with each other over his lyrical and musical contributions to the band, whether or not the remaining four members can continue to make music without him, and whether his death has overshadowed everything they've produced since. And these arguments often attract input from other fandoms, grief years of a different kind looking to understand exactly what impact a deceased member might mean for their own bands should the worst happen. Anyway, all this is to say that if you find yourself suddenly overwhelmed with feelings when a celebrity dies, it's perfectly normal and pretty common. Rather than being blindsided, make sure you're taking care of yourself, and maybe not arguing with other fans online about how best to preserve a legacy. Well, uh, that celebrity death tick. In all honesty, I actually started thinking about this because I started listening to Shiny again after like three years of being completely unable to do so because it made me too sad. Their new album slaps and I'm powerless to resist a banger. You did well, kids. If you want to remember your favorite celebrity without fear of judgment, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace.